bottom, it's time to thank some people who are on our side because we're on their side. You found a new tool, software, Blue Rhythm commissioning software. Robert, I sure have. I think Blue Rhythm is what I've been looking for all these years. Building commissioning can be chaos at the best of times. Most projects I consult on really suffer from poor information management. You know, it's 2019, yet the property and construction industry seems to be firmly stuck in the 20th century paperwork world. I think people mistake emails and PDFs and Microsoft files on their servers and all the different PCs as a digital solution. In reality, it's just unorganized chaos. Do you want to streamline your commissioning process and save time and money? Do you want to go paperless and increase efficiency? Blue Rhythm is a cloud-based software solution built specifically for building commissioning professionals. Blue Rhythm digitizes your custom forms and checklists, allows collaboration across project teams, and automates reporting, leaving you to focus on what matters. Their team help you onboard the test sheets you've developed over the years. You can even send it some in paper, and they will digitize that and put it in the Blue Rhythm system for you. In my opinion, Blue Rhythm pays for itself in time saved on paperwork on a single project. For a demo or to start a free trial, go to bluerhythm.com. That's where rhythm is spelled R-I-T-H-M like algorithm. Bluerhythm.com. Tell them the edifice complex sent you there. In a world where high-performance zero-defect buildings are hard to find, Two men are on a mission to disrupt the status quo. Welcome to the Edifice Complex, the property design and development podcast. Let your hosts, Adam Muggleton and Robert Bean, keep you up with who is innovating and doing great work, perspective on the adjacent possible, and challenges to the status quo. Welcome to Edifice Complex. I'm Robert Bean, your co-host and unofficial mediator here with my colleague, official agitator, friend, and Yoda of most everything to do with buildings, Mr. Adam Muggleton. Say hello, sir, Yoda. Hello, sir, Yoda. So today we are talking about the good stuff as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. So today we're taking kind of a side trip down the road into water management with a second generation plumber and technology entrepreneur who designed a solution for smarter water management and commercial properties. He's the owner of a mid-sized service plumbing company serving the greater Toronto area with over 15 years of experience in designing smart plumbing solutions, leak detection, electric valve control, meter data, that type of thing. But they're connected, scalable and affordable. So welcome to the show, Adam Bartman. How are you? Good. How's it going, guys? Well, so, uh, Adam, every once in a while, Yoda and I see a tradesperson break out into another dimension, <laughs> converting practical field knowledge and skills into new business opportunities. It's a great story, right, Adam? Absolutely. So, uh, start, start off by telling us how you entered your first career as a second-generation plumber and then morphed into a technology entrepreneur. Yeah, so I was sort of thrown into the field of plumbing. I hadn't consciously made that decision. My father was working in the industry for some 20, 30 years. Basically, fresh out of high school, he also started a business right at that time. And we began organically growing that service business. Today, they work for you know several hundred apartment buildings, condos throughout Toronto. And ultimately, what happened for me you know, being a bit younger, I'm 32 now, and, and I grew up kind of obviously surrounded by technology and emerging internet. And so all I was trying to simply do was come up with some easy tech-based solutions for the customers we were serving anyways, mainly because they were clearly underserved. So that was sort of the genesis of Reed. 
So this is a classic see the gap in the market, fill the gap in the market story, right? Very much. Uh, you know, you, you see the problem, you're just trying to solve it. I had no intentions of really creating another business. It just naturally took that road. So would you say this is your prime focus now? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I live and breathe this. I've just, I guess, naturally had those entrepreneurial tendencies. And so, you know, especially when initially I just went to the market to look for something that would help me, you know, solve my customers' problems and it didn't exist. I just figured I'll do it myself. (laughs) Let's make this happen. Because that's That's what you do, right? That's what you do when you're a plumber. You say, yeah, I'll, I'll just do technology. Why not? <laughs> For sure. And naturally, as a plumber, I think you're just solving problems every day. And so this was just another problem. Of course, it took a, a whole other story, but that was how it began. It also kind of simultaneously began by me reaching out to an old childhood friend who was in the automation space. And so I had one particular issue with a particular customer, and I basically turned to him with a plumbing fixture. And I was like, make this work on the Internet. <laughs> and that's where it began. <laughs> I like that. That's, that's, yeah. that's pretty cool. Definitely want to hear more of that story, how it's evolved. But I want to know, Adam, when you were obviously just a teenager when your dad started his business, is that correct? Yeah. yeah. What was that like for you to watch your dad take that bold move? You know what? I love the question. One of the only things I haven't done as an entrepreneur that most have to do is get out of a comfortable job you know, a lot of these people are working in a corporate environment and it takes a lot of effort to take the leap. He's the one who took the leap out of a comfortable job to begin a business. Granted, he didn't have a choice at that point, but that was one of those things I was missing. I was sort of just, you know, I woke up one day at 18 and he's like, we got to start a business. And I was like, (laughs) okay. (laughs) So I attribute a lot of my success to, to his decision. All right, so just for our international listeners, I just want to clarify something. You know, if you're a Canadian and you're in a trade, you earn good money. Oh, you very have much. a very comfortable living. You live in a four-bedroom house. You have cars. You have vacations. To walk away from that and take a risk is not an easy thing to do, right? No, no, not at all. And I agree with you. I think trades were often looked upon as not a very sexy job. You know, every parent wants their kid to go to school and become a lawyer and a doctor in the typical <laughs> roles. But, you know, plumbing and, and the trades in general, to me, is pretty much recession-proof. Everybody always needs water. <laughs> they always need power. And, you know, if you find your place in that industry, you'll be busy forever. Agreed, 100%, which is why my yeah. son is an apprentice electrician. <laughs> Perfect. I could not be happier with that choice, I can tell you. <laughs> Yeah. No, I think, uh, uh, what was that guy's name? It was uh, something Row, the dirtiest jobs. Micro. Micro. Yeah. He sort of brought back a positive look on the trades. I believe he did a lot for that. So now people look at it. You know, I, I speak to older parents of kids coming out of high school, and they're not as much opposed to their kids going to, to trade school. Well, you know, Adam, you and I have talked about this before. Like, I don't, well, I know more millionaire tradespeople than I know millionaire lawyers, doctors, mm. whatever, you know. And like you said, Adam, I mean, it's a secure job, provided that you, you know, keep your head on straight. For right? sure. Because we know there's all, and particularly those guys that start up businesses. I mean, you have a successful company, but not everybody 
can reach that level of success. And that difference actually occurs between their ears. And I, so, and I, you know, there's a difference between a trades person that runs a business and a business person that runs a trade business. Correct. Yes. Right. Very yeah. much. I, I mean, look, plumbing's plumbing. I, I'm good at it and I enjoy doing it, but I certainly enjoyed building a company more than anything else. And I think I naturally would have fallen into whatever it was as an owner operator. This yeah, remote- that's a great, that's yeah. a great comment right there because you know, we tend not to, to attract much of a, an audience in the trades, but this, with this one episode, I'm going to flog it out there because people need to, trades people need to hear that. And the thing is, is that if the tradesperson likes to be on the tools, but hasn't been able to give up the business operations yet, he's actually killing his company. There was a great book called, it was called The Entrepreneur Myth, The E-Myth, Michael Gerber. Mm-hmm. I don't know, mm-hmm. Adam Yoda, have you ever read the email? I haven't. I haven't, but I think I've heard it referenced before that book because it's quite. Yeah, how about quite... Adam Barton? Had you had you read, heard of the E-Myth? No, no. All right, so good. all right, so it's a great book, right? So basically, Michael Gerber says, guys, guys, women, men start up a business. They get caught up in all of the aspects of the business, but then they realize that what they do as a technician conflicts with what they have to do as the business owner. And eventually the business gets to a point where you got to decide, okay, am I going to be the manager and leader of this business or am I going to be the technician doing the work of the business? And it's at that point that they have to have a come to Jesus meeting about what the hell it is that they're going to do when they grow up. (laughs) And hundred percent. I, I, I remember one of the earliest things I had read, you know, the company, let's say was 12 years old today. I'd say at around year Four, I just pulled up, you know, on Facebook or whatever it was, how to be a better business owner, something like that. And one of the points that stuck with me was learn how to delegate. Yep. <laughs> and I put a lot of weight on that comment. And when I began to actually do that, you naturally saw the business expand. Yep. So it is important. People, people would always tell me to get off the tools. And I think it was from less of a, you know, go and grow the business perspective. It was them saying, you know, sit in your office, you're, you're the business owner now, but there is some real weight in that comment, get off the tools and focus on business development, attracting new customers, creating processes within the company and not being, you know, buried into the work itself. Yeah. The classic right. mistake most owner managers make, particularly tradesmen, engineers, architects is they have jobs, not businesses. Right. Yeah. Right. You know, you've got to be able to, no one's going to do it as good as you. No one's as good as you. You've got to get over that and delegate, right? That is the most powerful thing. It's a good point. Everyone thinks Mm. they have to do it and nobody can Mm. do it as good as I. And perhaps that's the truth, but I bet you two people could do your job. Maybe three have to do your job, but you're replaceable. And that's the point. Yeah. Here's the dirty secret, everybody. No one cares how good you are. The industry (laughs) does not care one bit how good you are. All yeah, that matters is the outcomes you can produce through the people you manage, period. Yeah. Sure. So sure. you remind me of, uh, when you were talking about your origin just there, it reminded me of a TV program I saw about the SAS, which is the UK's Navy SEALs called the Special Air Service. And at the end mm. of the program, the interviewer turned to the commanding officer and says, how do you know who to recruit? He says, I have to look at someone and I have to believe that I can parachute them naked into a town in the morning and by lunchtime they're clothed and fed and by the evening they're running the place, right? That's almost <laughs> a definition of an entrepreneur, right? 
Because <laughs> yeah, yeah. an yeah, entrepreneur yeah. can manage a plumbing business, electrical business, an architectural business, every business, right? That's the difference. Yep. That's what people get caught up on in our business, right? Just because you're a plumber doesn't mean you can only run a plumbing business, right? And you've proven that. So that's, that's a good segue to moving on. So I've got to get this in there. Yeah. I, I was looking through your information when we were doing our research and I love one of your, uh, I think it's in your overview document and it says two or three buildings, and I quote here, two or three building systems are connected. HVAC's connected via the BMS, fire's connected via the BMS and fire panel and plumbing is dumb. Right? Yes. And your goal, <laughs> your mission is to take the dumb out of plumbing. Would that be a fair statement? Take the oh, dumb out of plumbing. I love that. Absolutely. It, you know, it was frustrating being in these big buildings and even like big box stores, you know, your coffee shops, these massive retail centers and things like their baking oven is connected to the iPad. <laughs> and I always laugh. My wife's toothbrush is connected to an app. But when you go into a 50-story condominium with hundreds of people and units, the plumbing isn't connected to anything. It Initially, blew my mind. It doesn't make any sense. <laughs> How is it that no one has thought about this before? This is what I want to know. <laughs> I mean, look, naturally, I think people have, but yeah. I think most of them, if they are plumbers, they're more often engineers. And a lot of the products that have existed around water were mainly born out of the single family home market. Right. So there's been products like Watercop. That to me is like the first person ever or first company ever that did anything with water in the residential sector 15 years ago. Right. The only difference now is things are cloud connected and it's IoT based. But, you know, there's a handful of companies today that, again, born out of the single family home and the buildings that we work in, the, the niche of the market that we want to play in, they would never buy the consumer widgets and they wouldn't spend a half million dollars on a Johnson control system for this plumbing system. And so that's where we found our fit. Right. So interestingly, so I mean, when I tend to look at buildings holistically, so as a, a building that's got all these building services in it, of which water systems and plumbing systems are just a part of that, right? But you're, sure. you're absolutely spot on about the lack of interconnectedness there. But the mm -hmm. once you start connecting and measuring things, you can get to other problems like water usage, water leakage, water management, water quality, <laughs> how different systems use water and pass water between them, right? So once you get into this slice and you bring IoT into it, which is one of my pet things at the moment, you know, you can really do some stuff here, right? And change how water is used. For sure. There's tons of value creation out there. You know, of the three things we often tackle, risk is sort of the obvious. Yeah. Let's reduce giant catastrophes. But my other favorite two are helping to improve the day-to-day -day operations for these building managers who often have very little knowledge of mechanical systems. And as you mentioned, begin to open up that world of conservation. Let's use less, let's at least understand how we're using it, and then make better, more educated decisions with very easy to get data if you have equipment available to you. So how, just to give I, listeners, sorry, sorry Robert, you... Well, I just, I mean, so I'm listening and I'm watching Adam and I'm going, so you're 32 years old and you're talking about things that most people don't talk about until they're like they're in their fifties, <laughs> you know, risk reduction, you know, managing day-to-day -day operations and conservation. I, where, so before we keep going, like, where does that come from? 
How is that inside your body at 32 years of age? You know what? I think it's a bit of a, a recall of the earlier part of our conversation. When you're running a business, you begin, when it becomes more mature, you begin to realize that optimization, efficiency is really how you make it profitable. Most people can run a, a fat business and spend money and all kinds of crazy things with marginal <laughs> profits. If you want to make a healthy, sustainable business, you naturally have to have efficiencies in place. And when I would look at my customers, the majority of them being condominiums, often meaning there's a very fresh, you know, newly out of a, a training course condo manager who's honestly overworked and underpaid for the amount of stuff that they're expected to do. And now, you know, they're not putting up 20 story buildings. They're putting up 50 story buildings. That's the minimum. That's a lot of families. That's a lot of things going on. And so all that being said, I think you naturally, at least for me, are just trying to find a way to help them. You almost like feel bad for them as the provider. And that became a spinoff. And so I just took those same principles and said, you know, how can we help these buildings? And it ended up being focused into those three categories, the, the risk conservation operation. That's cool. I salute you because I had a commissioning business. My last business I owned in Canada was a commissioning business. And because mm. I didn't know, I had the benefit not any better. So I thought, you know what we're going to do? We're going to bring digital O&M manuals to North America because let's face it, O&M manuals suck, right? Oh, I love that idea. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> did it. Got a code, did it, sold it. And then I realized my errors. So my mistakes were this. One, I underestimated how much coding and support was required. Two, we had no support system in place because you need like 24-7 support. And then you've got to be working on the next release and the next release and the next release, right? Completely underestimated all this, right? Because most of my life has been professional services. So it worked and we sold it, but really we didn't have the ability to scale up, right? I totally underestimated what it takes and the scale you have to reach. So you seem to have solved that problem. So just give us a quick, I want to ask you, there's two questions here, right? Because one, yeah. I want to just acknowledge what you've done there, because I'm telling you, everyone has this like this myth, oh, two guys in a garage and they started Google. Them days are gone. Yeah. So gone. <laughs> like the light from that days do will not reach you today, right? Because everything's a lot more complicated and harder now. So you've, you've dealt with that. But there's two questions I'm getting to here. One is, give us an overview of where you are now in terms of, because what you're doing, you're bringing technology to dumb systems essentially, right? And then right. two, talk us through how you see... IoT and 5G, the evolution of 5G. I gave us a, a talk last year about where I saw this going. I see it going fascinating places, but I'd really be interested to get your take on that. So let's start with, you know, how you're applying technology to these dumb systems. How is that working? Well, it's a good question. It makes sense to ask them together. And it's because today, as you mentioned earlier, our focus is on a particular segment of a building, yeah. of really an ecosystem at the end of the day. And so today, you know, Reed's focuses on domestic plumbing systems and, you know, making them smarter. Yeah. Outside of that, I kind of compare this to the home market because it's my only reference point in that, you know, I used to go to Home Depot five, six years ago, pretty frequently I was doing a reno then, but I always had my eye on a particular aisle, which was right when you walked in the door, all the sort of electronics, like the lighting. And, you know, five, six years ago at the end of the aisle, at most, you had a very small section of smart tech, 
particularly yeah. from Philips, if you remember those bulbs, and yeah. it's sort of the emergence of widgets. There was a couple kind of hubs trying to bring in the garage opener and the doorbell and the lights and trying to bring it into a yeah. holistic platform. And it was the early adopters that were you know, going on eBay and putting stuff together, and it was cool. What really launched the smart home market, in my opinion, is, of course, when the big boys came in, Apple, Amazon, Alexa, and they said, listen, everybody, relax. <laughs> we, we have the hub. We're going to make this holistic. You know, you guys continue to make your door locks and your lights and your dimmers. We're going to bring it all together. And then it sort of unlocked, I think, the DIY homeowner that could begin to put together a, a nice smart automation system. In the commercial market, really outside of hiring, you know, Simmons or Johnson Controls or one of these big controls companies that anyways are often looking at HVAC, there's nothing really there. And so in speaking with some local vendors, they provide services to new buildings. Let's say you have a new condo going up, it's 40 stories. They come in to create automation, to kind of pull all the pieces together. So for instance, now a homeowner has an alarm panel in their suite. It looks like a little iPad and you could order Uber Eats, you could rent the party room, you could call the elevator, you could get notifications from the manager. It's beginning to pull all those pieces together. But they're small in the grand scheme of things. I mean, this is a local company doing, you know, 50 build in Toronto. I don't know who's going to be the big boy in this market. Perhaps it's the telecom companies, perhaps it's Amazon and Apple and the like, but somebody's going to have to come together and bring all this together to make a truly smart building. We just intend to be the ones doing a good job managing water. You know, it's a very busy space. There's a lot of companies that want to be the dashboard of everything. And to me, it's kind of let them run that race. We're going to be part of that ecosystem, but I'm not sure if we'll be the hub. Yeah. <laughs> so you're, you're basically want to be the specialist, but you also want to be sort of open source to a point where you can integrate in. Very much. Integration is a big part of what we do. And it was good that we saw that coming because similar to your home, yeah. people don't eight apps to run their house. No. It's nice. It could all be done in one place. So naturally, you know, we'll have to integrate and, and we have integrated with companies like I described. So we'll see. So there's a couple of aspects here. Going back to the risk aspect, presumably insurance people are interested in what you're doing? Yeah. So if you look at the insurance market in that general conversation, again, there's home-based products where insurance carriers offer, you know, premium relief or credits, subsidized installs. That is happening. Yeah. Something like seven or 8% on a premium reduction. Like you have a, an alarm system, you get a break. Now you have a leak detection thing, you get a break. Right. In the commercial market, I have not seen a commercially you know, scaled, accepted solution for any kind of relief on the insurance side. However, the public data on water damage shows that something is going to have to happen because what's happening now is the insurance companies are either pricing themselves out of the market entirely, particularly in multifamily high-rise buildings, and 
you know, the or or raising deductibles to, you know, 150 per claim. And and these buildings are basically self-insured now. Yeah. So something's going to have to break. You know, hopefully we could be a part of that movement. When you look at their statistics, it's something like 70 percent of all claims are water related, both by frequency and dollar loss. So it's very significant. I did not know that. That's an interesting stat, actually. Yeah. If, well, if you look up Zurich has a white paper pretty easy to find online and it has some of those statistics. Yeah. You know, it's funny, uh, Adam, and I'm going to refer to Adam Bartman as Adam and Adam Muggleton as Yoda. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I'm good with that. Yeah. (laughs) Particularly the baby Yoda. (laughs) So Adam Bartman, you know, Yoda and I have a pretty extensive experience in in engineering and part of that past has been doing like radiant heating and cooling systems. And I remember the decades of years of people going, well, what if it breaks? What if the lines break and the water damage? And I look at these people, I go, do you know like 70% of water damage we're talking. These are. Uh, we're not talking necessarily heat. This is mainly plumbing systems that are leaking, not heating systems. Yeah, yeah. And and you know, and so and then on the building science side, if we look at you know water damage due to building science, it's always due to drainage one way or another, either landscaping failures or failures in weeping tile systems or failures in rain management systems or snow management systems. Water is a blessing and a curse. Yes. And your business, of course, is, you know, taking advantage of that, which is really good. 70%, that's high. That is- it's very high. And don't get me wrong, I suspect a portion of that is from accidental sprinkler head damage, because I hear that quite often, to which nobody could do anything. With a lot of the regulations, they, they don't want any kind of remote control of a fire system. They would almost rather the building flood than a fire escape beyond its compartment. But I'd say a majority come from the severity of the leak. You're always going to get leaks in multi-floor buildings. And I don't think the insurance companies worried about that. They're able to price for that kind of risk. The trouble they have and, and what we've heard from them is they don't like when they can't control the severity of a leak. They understand the frequency. They have enough data on that. But when the leak becomes, you know, not two or three units, but 30 units in a whole lobby, then it really becomes a disaster for them. So how do you how do you get your head around the risk versus the quality of the installation, and the quality of the materials of assembly? So one example in particular, which might answer the question, there is a product out there that's supposed to have some 30 plus year life. It's a piping product. And what they're experiencing now is premature failure in around the eight-year range when they have a warranty for 20 years. So the company will warranty the, the pipe for 20 years. They're seeing failure in eight. And when they go to site, it's not because the product has failed. It's because the characteristics or the conditions of the system are outside of the manufacturer's requirements, things like velocity, temperature, pressure. And that leads back to us being able to say, well, of course, it's an unmanaged, unconnected system. Here's a way to, to start I love it. managing it, right? I love it. And so, so for them, this has just become a, a way to you know reduce their risk and provide some information. Interesting. That's, well, that actually helps the manufacturers in terms of warranty issues, because if you're, you know, so Adam, you're, you get a system in there, and if you can monitor things like velocity, temperature, pressure, and then there becomes a failure, your data becomes evidence in the claim. Precisely. Yeah, and also, and the, 
your data could be used to stop a cascade failure, right? It could Absolutely. energize other valves and shut off things. For sure. And I'm seeing the same thing. I know people have their thoughts on plastic products, but you see the same thing in copper, which is, of course, widely accepted as the go-to product for plumbing. You often see, you know, seven, eight years in, the copper has worn down so much by, again, these conditions that it's still failing far earlier than it should be. That's interesting. So the other yeah. the other thing I wanted to talk about is data. I, mm-hmm. I heard a quote, I can't remember who said it the other day, it might have been James Aldrich, but basically he said, all businesses now and in the future are data businesses, data-driven businesses, right? Yeah. And the only difference between businesses in the future is going to be who's making money out of that data and who's not. Mm-hmm. So you're going to wind up collecting a ton of data, I presume, right? Sure. You're going, sure. To, you're going to package that and sell it? <laughs> I think there are ways to monetize it. Of course, we've had those discussions, but not really in depth yet. I don't think most companies in that sort of startup mode are able to conceptualize how to monetize it or more specifically, who cares about that information. Our thoughts now is an insurance entity would want to know how's water being used, how much water, at what pressures, things like that might be of interest to them. I think today we're just trying to really focus on how is it valuable for all the people involved, for the building owner, for the residents, for the plumber that's going to go install it. And that's where we spend a lot of our energy. But of course, there'll be ways to monetize the data. To me, that's like the new currency, right? Between For sure. It's a new world. Yeah, between how many people's attention you have and how much information you have, that's everything nowadays. I mean, you could take that down. I'm just thinking when you said, I don't know who's interested, I had about three or four thoughts immediately. So, you know, all right, take insurance people first. They could use it to rate building managers and building companies. Mm. Who floods the most? Who doesn't? Who manages their buildings better? Who doesn't? Local municipalities could use it to add tax incentives and disincentives based on water use, right? Because let's right. face it, we all talk about energy as a as an emergency, and yeah, it's all well and good, but there's replacements, right? You mm-hmm. use nuclear, there's solar, there's wind, there's gas, but there's no replacement for water. Water is no. what water is, right? <laughs> right? Why no one talks about this? I have no idea. It just baffles me why this is not what mm. we're talking about. But that's that's what lobbying gets for you. But you know, so you've got insurance companies, municipalities, local governments, right? Also, design professionals. Absolutely. Right? So, you know, if you're a designer, I think we're moving with 5G and IoT, we're going to move into what I'm going to call evidence-based design, where the days of copy and paste spreadsheets are going to go and we're going to find out who can do this really and who cannot, right? And that design, evidence-based design is going to be based on real inputs into the design process. Like, you know, you're designing a condo that's aimed at, I don't know, student housing. There will be a water use profile that will be typical for 80% of that, right? right but that right, would right. have to be a data-driven analysis. So, you know, my advice to you is collect everything, hire a data scientist intern as soon as you can, right. and mine that sucker. Yeah. <laughs> so, Adam, Adam, here's a thought. It just came to my mind. So, let's just yeah. say your uh, uh, client hires a design team. They contact the insurance companies. They look at, because of data, they can go through a list of engineering firms, who's been good and who's been bad, Yep. right? 
And they can say, well, you know, engineering company A has demonstrated a history of not having failures in their plumbing systems. Therefore, the insurance rate for this particular building and what they're working on is going to be X. Mm -hmm. But if you pick that engineering firm, they've been bad. They have a huge failure rate. You're going to pay X plus 40%. Right, right. All of a sudden, you got the engineers paying attention because no one wants to lose a job because they got bad engineering. That's what data is going to do. God damn, yeah. you talking about an objective rating system here? That would frighten <laughs> the, the life out of people. Now, think about this. You could do that. You could rate these engineers that way today if you had access to PI claims. If you had access to professional indemnity claims, if that was public Absolutely. open source knowledge, you could just sort that sucker out, right? Because there are some <laughs> firms, when I had my firm, you, know, you we paid a fortune and we very, I, I was frightened of claiming because I come from the UK and that's like the last thing. But here it happens a lot more. So, you know, there are some firms that are always claiming, I know who they are. I'm not going to say their names out loud here. But, you know, <laughs> if you could see that data as a developer, and right, be that be part of the scoring system to do they qualify to do your work, right? That would be an interesting thing, right? Yeah, sure, they come in cheap, but then they disappear. And as a developer for the next 25 years of that building, you're dealing with shitty installation, shitty design, bad performance, right? The cost yeah. of that is hidden but vast. I'm thinking, Adam, you, even I think even the developers don't want a bad rap, though... No. You know, a lot of them build the building and then release it. It's not theirs after two years. Mm. The reputation matters a lot because Toronto's booming and there's so much development going on. Mm. So they are starting to care about the quality of the build. The Edifice Complex will continue in just a moment. If you're enjoying this podcast, we need your help. We're not asking for money, just a minute of your time. Our goal is to make the Edifice Complex podcast as relevant, educational, and useful as possible. By having good ratings, we can reach the widest audience. Therefore, our request is two small things. If you haven't already, leave us a review and rating on iTunes. And subscribe to the Edifice Complex on YouTube, even if you normally only listen to the audio version. These two things will help us immensely. Also, if you would like Robert or Adam to speak, teach, or consult on your project or business, please email admin at edificecomplexpodcast.com. Thanks for your time. And now, back to the show. The market is a bit bifurcated, right? So if you're a condo builder, you're essentially what I call a hit and run guy. Build that sucker, sell it, and then you get out of town as fast as your truck will go down the road. Right. Yeah. Then there's what I call uh, professional long-term developers, like the Oxford Properties, for example. Right, They develop mm-hmm. AAA buildings, mixed-use buildings, sometimes with condos, but they own and operate them buildings for decades. Yeah, so a right? popular trend I'm seeing now. Yeah. So, of course, locally we have Tridel, yeah. a big developer, and their spin-off management is Dell. You're seeing that more frequently, right? Shout out to whoever came up with that clever name. <laughs> Chop it now. <laughs> I think this is a, you know an interesting path forward. And Adam, I you know I think you're on to a a nice golden egg with the data acquisition that you can do. And I I agree with Yoda there that data is the new currency, and the more you can build your database of buildings that you're in and observe how those buildings operate, that the insurance companies would be really interested in that information, but tied back to who the design professionals are. And this kind of leads me to another question, Adam. 
So how much of this is, in your opinion, is installation problem versus engineering problem? When it comes to, you mean like the failure rate? Failures, yeah. yeah. I think it's really neither of those. I think what happens is engineers are doing their best to build good design and they kind of turn the keys on to this building and they walk away. The developer walks away, the engineer walks away, and it's like all these people move in and they hire a manager who just has to start running this machine. And so you you know you miss maintenance requirements. It's a big disconnect between mm. who put that thing there and now who has to live in it. And so most of the failures are really just you know, drain backups, equipment failure, like the little hoses because somebody opened and closed their drawer yeah. in the kitchen 10 times on it. I mean, it's it's often very silly things, but they're just struggling to manage these enormous properties. It, it, like you said, it's very different than Oxford yeah. builds a, a building and has a strategy after. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, there is a movement starting certainly in Canada to go to developers are moving into the residential market as in long-term rentals, rather than knock them up and sell them. And that's going to change the market because they will certainly approach it different to a condo developer. And again, just for our international listeners, condos are high-rise typically or large um, apartment developments, multifamily developments. So outside North America, they're not called condos. In the UK, where I come from, we do not have any condos anywhere. They're flats. (laughs) Right, right. So just FYI. We do see uh, a lot more purpose-built rentals, buildings that the developer intends to keep and rent. And they certainly think about them very differently. So that's, that's, I want to talk about that. So what, so when they're the owner built project, the philosophy, the difference, just explain to our audience the differences between the two. So someone builds a project, they're going to get rid of it. Like you said, the engineers leave, the developer leaves, and the building manager is left there with the keys and trying to run a machine that they don't know how to operate right. compared to somebody who actually is going to hang on to that building for decades. Define that philosophy. Well, when they're building a purpose-built rental, you know, let's say developer A says, we're going to put up a 50-story building has X amount of units. They do, you know, long-term projections. How much rent are we going to get? Performance. It becomes an asset for them. When they're putting up a development, it's really just a financial kind of arbitrage of how much money can I borrow? How big of a building can I make? How many people can I squeeze in it? And then I'm out. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to run away like it's a crime scene, which it is normal. Right? <laughs> it is. Well, well, that's the thing. And so... But there's a lesson to be learned about the property owned or the owner owned pro- and because they make decisions based on long term. And those same decisions that they make are the same decisions that people should be using when they build their own assets or their own houses or whatever it is. Because, you know, these condo owners or apartment renters, I mean, they're paying condos fees and those fees are supposed to cover the failures in the building. But we know from B.C., Yep, you know, yeah. that many people who were on fixed incomes ended up becoming homeless. They couldn't, they didn't have the money to actually fix the places that they're in. It was a disaster, you yeah, know? That was a mess. Yeah. And so there's, a, it, there's huge lessons it, here. You, you could bring it down to even a, a simpler visualization for someone. Just imagine one, you know, guy that's going to go and build a house or renovate a house and flip it, as they say, quickly sell it off and I'm out of here. Versus the same person 
building that house, but says, I'm going to live in the top floor and rent the basement. He's of course going to make better, more, you know, quality based decisions in the build. Yeah. Cause he, he doesn't want the tenant knocking on his front door and going, Hey, my toilet's blocked. You know? Exactly. <laughs> in the residential lease, the landlord's virtually responsible for everything. So, yeah. Okay. So let's, Okay, Adam. So me and my uh, and my girlfriend come to you and we say, okay, we're we're gonna you know want to get into this condo or house, but we really like the granite countertops. We like all the stainless steel fixtures and we like all the hardware. We want it to be gold plated. Is that where we should put our money? No, I, you know what? I had built a rental property like five years ago, and it was three units. And I spent the majority of the time naturally as a mechanical you know tradesperson in the guts. I didn't even think about the drywall, the flooring, all that stuff can get changed. It's really irrelevant at the end of the day. So if someone's building a house, spend 90% of your energy on making sure the bones are good. And then, you know, it's like a person, you can change your clothing, but you can't change your heart. (laughs) So I love that. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. So yeah, focus on the infrastructure, right? Because the, sure. the facades can just get changed anytime. The rest is lipstick. Yeah. I, I have friends that don't have, you know, the background, let's say that I do. And for fun, I would go with them when they were house shopping. Yeah. And the typical thing, you know, the guy walks in and doesn't like the chandelier above the table. And that's like breaking the deal for him. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, dude, like change that if you want. That's like the least of your issues. You know, the corner of the house is sinking. (laughs) But that's what happens. That's that's so true, actually. That is so true. The delusion that a house is an an investment. It might be an asset, but it's certainly not an investment. Let me be clear. Investments pay you money. They're not targets for taxation, and they don't cost you money every month. (laughs) That's... I don't know. I think I'm getting, I think I'm becoming a crazy old dude because I cannot. The more I look at houses, the more I cannot see them as an investment in any way. So I would rebut and say <laughs> I've thought of it differently. I guess because yeah. I could have done a lot of the upgrades myself, but yeah. I'm on house number four, like yeah. as many times as I've moved. And each time I purchased the house, there was a couple things that I thought of to raise the value of it so that I could get to the next step, a larger home. And they were things like, could I rent the basement? You know, could there be income generated? Yeah. Could I upgrade the the guts of the house, the roof, or to raise the yeah. natural value of it? That's how I always thought of home buying. Yeah, so that's a developer's perspective. That's called a development gain, right? Yeah. <laughs> and if I yeah. was a young single man, the hack of all hacks is like have a multi-unit, a duplex or triplex, live in the top one, and then rent the others out and live for free, right? My first house I purchased with $25,000 of like RRSP things. And I ended up making two units in the basement. Granted, might not have uh, been to code, (laughs) but I had two units in the basement. I lived upstairs with my girlfriend at the time and I lived for free. It was the best thing in the world. And I saved a bucket of money and then moved on to the next house. And you were how old when you did that? So again, I was lucky. I was thrown into this wheel real early. I was 23 when I bought my first house. I was 24 when I got married wow. and I'm 32 now. I have four kids. So I'm, I'm moving quickly. Most people tell me, but 
All good. I made my bed. <laughs> yeah, no, you are. Yeah, good for you. Moving good through. You. So we're coming up on the 50-minute mark now, so we're going to wind down a bit, but we're going to ask you some sort of rapid-fire questions just to... Because yeah. uh, part of the sort of mission of the podcast is uh, I always imagine some undergraduates or trainees like listening to this, trying to get a handle on which way to go, right? So mm-hmm. as a father of a tradesman-to-be, what's the pitch for, you know, You've got, you're speaking, you've been invited to speak to the graduating class of 2020 and they don't know if they're going to college or trade school. How are you going to pitch them to become trades? So I did just attend at the college I graduated in. They had brought us in as sort of entrepreneurs to speak to graduating classes. I wouldn't really tell them to go into a trade or the other school. I don't even think school is for everybody, at least post-secondary. I think people got to figure out what they love, what, you know, that thing that you do that the time kind of passes and just go and be really good at that. You'll figure out how to make money at it later always. But, you know, if not to make long answers, if I didn't like what I was doing, whether it was plumbing or just building a business, as we talked about before, uh, I would have given up long ago. Yeah. Because it doesn't make sense to wake up every morning sometimes with the natural things you got to deal with as a business owner. So. If you, there's a lot of people out there, middle-aged that are looking, looking at their careers and asking them, what the hell am I doing? And they're, <laughs> and, you know, and they're looking at the trades and they're going, well, maybe I should go switch over to the trades because I'm not loving my job as a lawyer or an architect or an engineer or whatever. Moving somebody who's you know, 40, 45 into the trades, what kind of advice would you have for them? I think it's challenging. I think most building owners are naturally looking for younger stock, (laughs) I'll call them. But I think, you know, when I was in the hiring process, you could very quickly see somebody's attitude in the interview process, their personality. And I never paid attention to skills. So the way I look at a hire now in the trade side is, do you care about your work? You know, do you give a shit? (laughs) And I'll teach you the skills. That's not a big deal. But are you going to be pleasant to deal with? And so I don't think at 45, you know, if you were to go and start in the trades, granted you had a good personality and, and a good work ethic, it takes like two, three years to get pretty good at a trade. So I'd go for it. I think you should always go for it. If someone's in a corporate job, <laughs> I love it. I believe. Yeah. yeah. If you're in your cubicle and you don't like it, just get out. Right. Get out. Yeah. Damn right. And this, I think yeah. one of the points that I want to hammer home is, you know, Show up, be on time, pay attention, learn. You know, that puts you head and shoulders above 50% of everyone you're going to be standing next to immediately, right? Legitimately, yeah. Some yeah. of the, the guys that yeah. were best that turned out to be the leaders came to us with zero knowledge. Yeah. And you said they showed up. Yeah, exactly right. Okay. Well, yeah, Reliability is a big thing. Yeah, of course, yeah. yeah. People, it's a, such a cliche, I'll just show up and do the work, but... The amount of people that don't actually do that is mind-blowing, <laughs> really, right? It is, it is. It is, yeah. I don't know what people expect, but... Everybody wants to be rich. They don't want to put in the work. Yeah, and that's the point, yep. right? There is no shortcut. And that's one of the things I like about the trades because there's a structure to it, right? You want to be a plumber? You want to be an electrician? Right. you got to do this. you got to do that. you got to go here for three years. You know, there's a structure to that, and it weeds out the people that don't really want to do it. Well, you know, it's another interesting point. I had a friend who was in real estate and he said something to me that stuck with me. He goes, you know, when I do something, when I work hard at my tasks, I don't really see anything at the end. And 
he envied me as a plumber saying that you put in all this hard work and you can step back and actually physically see where all that energy went, you know, be it a house or mm. whatever the case, you actually get to see something. So it's, it's nice. Yeah. I always wanted to be a demo. If I came back again, I will be a demolition guy. You know, I go to work, the yeah. building standing, <laughs> I go home, it's gone. There's something right. very satisfying about that result. You know? <laughs> Especially if you're sitting in the chair of a machine yeah. and not doing it and but with some yeah, just giant like eating it or blowing yeah. it up would just be such an awesome yeah. way, so satisfying to go home yeah. knowing I knocked that thing down. <laughs> That'd be awesome. <laughs> anyway, that's another life. So, yeah, we just want to thank you for coming on. We're going to, in the show notes, we're going to put all your contact coordinates down. Are you yeah. on Twitter? Where can people find you? So we're very active on Instagram and LinkedIn. Those are right. probably the two best places to reach us. What's the address is there? Do you know? So on Instagram, it's readwater.io, and I can only assume it's the same on LinkedIn. <laughs> See, delegated the Twitter account, right? I like that. Yeah, oh, yeah. I, don't, I don't touch it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, awesome. That's some advice. Oh, never, never mind. I was going to say that's some good advice you could give to a world leader, and I won't talk about who that is. But just tremendous. Oh dear. Okay. okay. Okay, Adam. It seems seems weird to call someone Adam. Okay, Adam. Well, thank you for coming on, and uh, yeah, thanks very much, and best yeah, of no, luck with you. all your endeavors. Yeah. Much appreciated, Adam. Okay, well, Adam, that was a good call, right? It's weird speaking to another Adam. I always find it confusing with two Adams on the call. <laughs> there's got there's about to be a joke in there about two Adams. Yeah. yeah. As an A-T-O-M. You know? yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. But uh, hey, I, I didn't yeah. buy the cut of his jib, as they say, right? <laughs> Great call. I, you know, I'm glad we actually had him on. You know, it was a little bit of a divert, not a diversion, a... Uh, Look, yeah, it was a different path for us to go down to have him on, but probably one of the more valuable dialogues that we've had for some of our newer listeners that are trying to figure out what they want to do and for maybe some of our existing listeners that are maybe looking at career changes. I like his brain. I like his – He's just a, he just says he's just a solid guy. Like he he obviously had, you know, some good upbringing – yeah, he's very humble for someone his age, you know, to be able to do what he's doing, and understanding concepts that usually a more mature mind has. Yeah, I mean, he's know? very, he's obviously very driven, but he sees yeah. opportunities. Very positive. That's the word I'm looking for. He's very positive, right? Yeah. He's not a glass half empty guy. He's a glass half full guy. And yeah. you know what? There's a that, for my son who's sort of just going into trades. He is yeah. a great example of what is possible, right? You go in, yeah. you see opportunities. There's a hundred different ways to branch off and do something and yeah. make a living and make a, a difference. You know, it's a great example. You know, yeah. and this is the thing that people miss when there's a, you know, a building gets designed, who gets the prize and the grip and grin photo? It's the architect, yeah. right? And below them is this iceberg of people. Right, there's trades, there's builders, there's engineers, there's technicians, there's specialists. They're all below there. None of them really get acknowledged, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah. Well, if so, they wanted acknowledgement, they'd become an architect. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't I don't want to be bad architects because they are they are artists. They are the artists of our yeah. industry, right? But they do get feted and treated a little bit with kid gloves. I think. You know, there's there's 
a lot, it would behoove a lot of architects to be a bit more inclusive and acknowledge a lot more the other people involved in the buildings that they design, I think. Yeah. Well, and that's what the whole integrated design process is all about, you know, is it levels out the playing field. You know, in many ways, it's like a business, right? I mean, there are, there's the philosophy of businesses that are the traditional, there should be a hierarchy, you know, there's the CEO at the top and then everything else falls underneath. But there's also business philosophy where it's very horizontal and where, yeah. management and leadership is actually a center core and it branches to the left and it branches to the right. There is no pyramid structure. An integrated design mm-hmm. process is very much it's a flat organization structure, right, as opposed to the hierarchical ones. And so I gave a presentation before Christmas to a group of developers and there were architects and engineers in there. So I tried to explain to them the integrated design process and the way I did it was this. Well, you have to understand, guys, in the integrated design process, the humble commission engineer has the same value as the architect mm-hmm. and the developer. And the look of disbelief on their face was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> so then I played a U.S. Green Building Council card. I said, this is not me. I didn't do it. It's quite Ricky Gervais, yeah. right? You did it. This is what, the, if you read the lead guide, this is what they say. Yeah. Right? And then they sort of come round a bit. But this is the point, right? Yeah. The idea. It presupposes, the integrated design process presupposes everyone's around the table contributing based on their skill set, right? And that doesn't happen that often. I mean, all the jobs I've done, I could probably count on one hand the amount of times that's actually happened in real life. Yeah. Uh, Uh, What I do know is that in the integrated design process, which applies both to the construction part of my career, but also to the business side, because integrated design can also be integrated business design. And that when you do integrated processes that you the outcomes at least in my experience have been way better you know and i saw that even in the last business that i sold to the danish company you know we had a very flat organization it was very much integrated everything was transparent when we relinquished our responsibility for the business and then that business moved into a hierarchical system we saw collapse we actually saw it fail not failure under our leadership but failure under theirs and allowed us to actually buy Mm -hmm. the business back so Having integrated processes where everybody comes to the table with an equal voice and then executing on uh, strategies and tactics is very powerful. It takes very mature, secure leadership load to do that. Yeah, absolutely right? it does. Yeah, yeah, it does. I've seen it happen a few times and on all those jobs, they were very successful. But what it meant was the design process was a bit more elongated and harder, mm-hmm. but it made for a more secure construction process because a lot of things were resolved. Yeah. The gray areas were not there in abundance, so there was little wriggle room. You know, the contractor bid on it, and when he came up with some creative RFIs, they were just like shot down, you know, because the design team had taken the time to resolve earlier. So it was a great cost control. The hidden benefit of integrated design is that it enables better cost control Mm. of the construction process, but it's super hard to quantify, right? Not much much research has been done on that. That's just my anecdotal experience, but I don't know. Construction's crazy. It's somehow this whole thing has to upend itself and change a bit, right? Because it hasn't really changed from I design it till my fee runs out and then I lose interest. Then it gets bid to the lowest bidder yeah. who builds it till his money runs out. <laughs> then everyone runs away like it's a crime scene. Yeah, you know? <laughs> yeah, I like that. I like that statement. Well, and, you know, when you yeah. think about you know Adam and his evolution in his business career, but also yeah. you know the path that he's on. 
he mentioned three things, you know, risk reduction, improve the day-to-day operations for these managers, and then conservation. Those are three mm. big philosophical tasks that he's taken on for someone his age. I, I, I love that. I like that he's so young and he's enthusiastic about these things. He gave me some gems that I'm going to steal. Adam, so if you're listening yeah. to this later on, I'm going to steal some of your things. I'll give you credit, by the way. <laughs> and one yeah. of them has to do with this concept about people when they design systems. And, and, client, and developers are like this, too. You know, he talks about, listen. The aesthetics of a building, the internal aesthetics, the external aesthetics of the building, that's like the clothes that we wear. But the bones, the guts, the organs, your physical health, your psychological health, that's what is important. Get that right. Yeah. Fix that first. And he, like you said, I think his words were 90% of the effort that he put into when he you know, would buy a house or renovate or build a house or whatever was in the internal systems, not the aesthetics. So, yeah. Adam, I'm going to steal that line. I think that was a brilliant piece of metaphor or analogy. Yeah, my big takeaway was that state. He threw out 70% of all insurance claims yeah. are water or flood related. Just looking at that right wow. now, right? Wow, that was a big number. If he just said 40, I'd have been impressed at 70. I'm like, wow. Yeah. Well, you know, you think about even all the places that you've lived in in the past, even if yeah. you rented or we were leasing, you know, businesses, buildings, whatever, water damage. Yeah, water. when I think about it, I've been in this house 12 years. The only big claim I've ever had is a water damage claim in the basement. Yeah. Huh? So, so, yeah, it's, it's probably right. Really- so I'm in a 34-story building here now. They've had many, oh, many, several water failures. They fix them, of course. But the ones at the top yeah. floors, 34th floor, you know, that's different than having a leak on the second floor. <laughs> when oh, the yeah. leak is at the 34th floor, everything floods down to the second yeah, floor. Yeah. And so the water damage can be really, really huge. When I think about the building that we were in when we had our uh, engineering and fabrication building, the leakage, and it was water-driven damage. So what would happen is the rains would show up, and in Calgary, you know, the weather, the predominant winds came from the yeah. northwest, and the water damage was driven into these into the roofing systems and the, uh, what was the interface between the roof and the brick wall block wall failed all the time every time when we saw a big storm coming in we knew we were gonna get water damage we would complain to the developer who was a big developer in town you know till the cows came home and they would you know given credit to them they'd come out and they'd try to fix it but the next storm it would happen again so repeated water damage right yeah yeah i'm surprised insurance in big sort of high-rise condos like you're in, I'm surprised insurance companies don't require developers to put in solenoid valves everywhere. Mm. So like, you know, leak detection, immediately that area, shut, yeah. right? Try and contain it. But I, I don't know. What do I well, know? I mean, and, this is why. Well, you think about it. So I'm guessing, okay, so you got a major flood on a top floor. You're starting to talk tens of thousands of dollars. Like the unit right below oh. the 34th, the 32nd, 33rd floor, right? If that water comes through and starts to damage paintings, someone's yeah. musical instruments, someone's heirlooms, yeah. never mind the actual building structure itself, the drywall, the flooring, the infrastructure, the potential for mold and mildew, you know, like it can get it can get out of hand really quickly, right? So we're not talking about a couple of grand, we're talking tens of thousands of dollars. Well, if that starts to go through the 32nd floor or the 31st floor, yeah. and you keep going down, go down 10 floors, 10 floors, now we're starting talking hundreds of thousands of dollars. Okay, so Adam, what does it cost for a freaking solenoid valve? 30 bucks. Yeah, exactly. Right? A, a moisture sensor switch and a control device, which Adam, you know, he's working on, right? So the whole setup's a hundred bucks. Well, for God's sakes. Yeah, a hundred bucks a unit. Yeah, hundred bucks a unit. What the hell? hell? Like, it's just a no-brainer. <laughs> You know what? I think uh, he, his business is in the right place at the right time because 
as the cost of quarter of water increases, that's going to be hard in Canada, but in other parts of the world, it's already happening, yeah. right? So it's scarce. Yeah. Then it's going to drive things to the sort of solutions he's designing and developing, yeah, yeah. right? Because water conservation, water use, uh, taking the damage away, you know, just the conservation and use side of it, as that increases, yeah. then it's like when oil went through the roof in the 70s, right? That led to whole loads of energy conservation. There's going to be a moment like that for water yeah. in the I future. Agree. And then you'll see, right? But interesting space is quite, as an older person, sort of semi-retired, I was a bit jealous seeing him young. I know. You know in the early start of his career. I know. I was right? going the same thing I was going on. Yeah, like this, yeah, I loved it. Yeah, I'm totally with you on that one. The big disconnect. He talked about, you know, the design teams and the developers, they do all these property developments and then they leave and then the building manager's yeah. left behind. I, do, I wanted to ask him about the property managers that are coming in, like their skill sets and their skill capabilities. And he was saying, you know, like, a 20-story building, well, that's, that was pretty traditional path, but now it's 50 stories. Yeah. Well, that's a different system. You know, 50-story building, you got yeah. many more people, more possible, more, the risks are much higher for failure. I think property managers is one of them jobs that could get automated in the future. As buildings become super connected with 5G and IoT, the building manager will be someone sitting in Calgary managing 20 buildings, right? You know, he'll be, at the moment, a building manager is an expert on experts and a paper shuffler. Mm. Ten years from now, that person's going to be a dude sitting in an office somewhere or a girl, and they're going to be managing off KPIs and alarms. Mm. So and the then, response systems are really important, right? Yeah. So our buildings could get more complex, yes. But I think the technology strange at the moment. There's a lot of complexity in building systems and building management systems because there's no. It's all proprietary mm. systems, right? And I think one of the things five G is going to do is when you're going to get these sort of open protocol straight to internet devices that can then just report the data, mm. right? So then the proprietary software becomes less of an issue because it becomes the output of the device rather than how it works. Right. You know, so if you're Honeywell or you're selling Longworks, you know, future don't look too good for you, I don't think. <laughs> think about that. Yeah, exactly. Else. <laughs> yeah, well, a lot of those yeah. things are obsolete now. They don't, they just don't know it yet. <laughs> no, they just don't know it. Yeah, so yeah, if you're a controls engineer, you need to be thinking about five or ten years down the road and position yourself in the data space, I think. Yeah. You know, but I don't know. We'll see. It gets there, I think. The only question, the big variable is how fast. Right? How fast does 5G roll out? How fast does the industry, the Siemens and the Honeywells sort of like respond yeah. to it? But it's coming, man. This is like a train coming down the track. And you're either bolted to the rails or you're running away. (laughs) (laughs) Big wake-up calls coming. Oh, yeah, yeah. Get your blinders off. He um, also talked, well, you mentioned it too, data as the new currency, and we've talked about that before. I like the fact that, you know, with all of this, like the more data he can put into his database in terms of how these systems operate, temperature, velocity, and pressure, you know, those three things, right, and how that can be used to drive design, insurance, premiums, management systems, yeah. maintenance, commissioning. But there's a lot of things you can do with that information, right? Yeah. Once that information becomes sort of like ubiquitous and is offered up in the right format, every insurance company is going to be interested in yeah. that. How big a risk is this building? Well, part of that risk is how well is it managed. Yeah. Right? Yeah. If you can see that objectively over a period of time, that's a data point you're interested in. I don't know how you couldn't be if you're an insurance yeah. company. Yeah. So, yeah, we live in interesting times, man. I'll tell you that. 
Okay, well, that was a good one. I enjoyed that very much. I shall see you on the next one. All right, Adam. Always a pleasure, man. You've been listening to the Edifice Complex podcast with Adam Muggleton and Robert Bean. To access show notes for this episode, visit edificecomplexpodcast.com. Also, if you would like Robert or Adam to speak, teach, or consult on your project or business, please email admin at edificecomplexpodcast.com. See you next time. Adam, it's time to thank some people who are on our side because we're on their side. You found a new tool, software, Blue Rhythm commissioning software. Robert, I sure have. I think Blue Rhythm is what I've been looking for all these years. Building commissioning can be chaos at the best of times. Most projects I consult on really suffer from poor information management. You know, it's 2019, yet the property and construction industry seems to be firmly stuck in the 20th century paperwork world. I think people mistake emails and PDFs and Microsoft files on their servers and all the different PCs as a digital solution. In reality, it's just unorganized chaos. Do you want to streamline your commissioning process and save time and money? Do you want to go paperless and increase efficiency? Blue Rhythm is a cloud-based software solution built specifically for building commissioning professionals. Blue Rhythm digitizes your custom forms and checklists, allows collaboration across project teams, and automates reporting, leaving you to focus on what matters. Their team help you onboard the test sheets you've developed over the years. You can even send it some in paper, and they will digitize that and put it in the Blue Rhythm system for you. In my opinion, Blue Rhythm pays for itself in time saved on paperwork on a single project. For a demo or to start a free trial, go to bluerhythm.com. That's where rhythm is spelled R-I-T-H-M, like algorithm. Bluerhythm.com. Tell them the Edifice Complex sent you there.